but I'm really very sorry for people in Sudan. I believe they deserve better than what they have now. They have been struggling for democracy, for justice for long, 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 long time. But still this moment, they didn't get what they want. We experienced 30 years of military government that commit atrocities on Sudan. It was really a very brutal regime. You're listening to Asylum Speakers, the podcast. I'm your host, Jazz O'Hara, and together with some very special guests, we'll be taking you on a journey across the world without you having to go anywhere. We're here to amplify voices, from the people leaving their countries and everything behind them to the volunteers working alongside them. We'll be hearing from those with lived experience of displacement and the people working on the front line, the real heroes of today, the humans behind the statistics and the headlines. Join me as we transcend borders, nationalities, religions and languages to hear from the people with which we share this world, our worldwide tribe. Today's episode is about a country very close to my heart, Sudan. Like most people in the UK, I grew up without any knowledge of what was happening in Sudan. In my history lessons at school, I learned about the Holocaust and the ethnic cleansing that happened during the Second World War, but I learned nothing about the current genocide in Sudan that continues to this day. It wasn't until I went to uni and I somehow blagged my way onto a scholarship programme to study Mandarin in Beijing, which is definitely a story for another time, but I'm telling you this because I was sharing a room there with a now good friend of mine, Anna, who was studying the genocide in Darfur, a region in Sudan, for her degree. She was my first introduction to the situation there. She gave me the context, she told me stories about what she was reading, and I remember lying in bed one night in our room in Beijing, watching a film together called Attack on Darfur, a Hollywoodized but pretty accurate depiction of what is happening there. That film still haunts me, honestly. This is a warning for anyone who watches it. It was the most heartbreaking film that I've ever seen, but it served a very important purpose for me. Fast forward about five years or so, and I found myself in the Calais jungle refugee camp for the first time chatting to a guy there who told me that he was from Darfur. As he talked about how his village had been burnt to the ground and he showed me the scars on his legs from where bullets had hit him, I thought back to that film and those conversations with Anna and I was grateful that I knew even just a little bit about what he was telling me. I realised though that I still had a lot to learn. Since then, I've met many wonderful Sudanese people along my journey. I'm happy to call some of them very good friends of mine. You guys might remember my conversation with Awad in episode two, and I also have a Sudanese foster brother. This episode comes after many conversations with them about the best way to encourage understanding and awareness for the people of Sudan. It aims to be a comprehensive introduction into the history, but through personal stories that make the information accessible to everyone. Before we get started and hear from my three wonderful guests, I'm going to first tell you a little bit more about our lovely partner and sponsor, Love Welcomes. Love Welcomes is a social enterprise employing women with refugee status right here in London to make beautiful products such as homewares, table settings and gifts. And they have generously given our listeners 10% off with the code WWT for Worldwide Tribe at checkout on their website, lovewelcomes.org. Let's hear from their founder, Abby. Love Welcomes is an organisation that employs women from a refugee background to make products that we then sell worldwide. And what we found is the work that the team do enables them to feel more empowered and integrated into community and make friends. And so whether we're doing it in a refugee camp or we're doing it where we are today, which is in the heart of London, 
we see huge difference to people's lives. So if you would like to support the incredible work that Love Welcomes do, check out their website lovewelcomes.org and you can use the code WWT for 10% off their beautiful products. My current favourites are the range of Palestinian ceramics. Now let's hear from three wonderful women sharing their knowledge and stories about Sudan. First, Sonia and Maddy from an amazing organisation called Waging Peace who support the Sudanese community in the UK. Then Marwa, who shares her personal experience of living in and leaving Sudan. Her testimony is an honour to be able to include and share with you. I would love to start by hearing how you guys are doing today. How actually are you? Thank you very much for asking. For now, I'll say I'm doing really well. The sun is shining and I'm excited and nervous to be here. Yeah, no, that is a nice question and so unexpected that... (laughs) I don't know what to say. I feel good. I feel like we should be singing. Like, ah, yeah. oh. <laughs> the, the backup like, singers here, yeah. looking at each other, clicking, really yeah. harmonising. Sonia mm. will sing. We shall overcome. Oh, hell <laughs> yeah! No, she will. Maybe it's she gotta be spontaneous, Maddie. Things get too heavy. That's your cue. That, to... All right, all right. I'm gonna bring it on too. And how are you? I'm doing good. I feel the same. As soon as there's a blue sky, I don't mind if it's cold. I'm happy to just have a bit of sun on my face. And I'm happy that we've finally made this happen. Because looking back over our email thread, it goes back maybe two years or something. Yeah, yeah, it does. Wow, the different times that we've emailed, like where Sudan has been on Mm. its journey. It's weird to go back through that chain and think, you know, even in the latest stage of us working this out, there's been a, another coup in the country and we would not have predicted that when we were emailing even quite recently. And that's something I definitely want to talk about and cover today, but maybe it makes sense to start with an introduction to Waging Peace and what you guys do. Absolutely, yeah. Waging Peace is a charity based here in London. We work with Sudanese asylum seekers and refugees. And we also do campaigning, lobbying, we do media work, anything and everything to do with Sudan. Yeah, we say our mission statement is to support the Sudanese community to build meaningful lives in the UK. Different people have very different ideas of what meaning is going to look like in their life. We've worked with some people who really want to raise a family here, that's their ultimate goal. Other people who really want to create change back in Sudan for their own country, their friends and family who still live there, down to they want to receive an education, they want to run a marathon, they want to learn about history. I mean, it's all the sorts of things that would make meaning for anyone else. So we don't kind of limit ourselves to particular forms of support, like getting someone a winter jacket or a lawyer, important though those are, you know, we will just sort of help someone, yeah, build a life that they want to be living in the UK. And also, you know, very often that means they do want to do work on Sudan uh, and do sort of policy and campaigning work as well. But we, we take that as our kind of entry point rather than anything else is what that person wants to do and achieve for themselves. And that's Genuinely what I love so much about what you do is that it feels needs-led and community-led and based on what that person actually individually is looking for. I love that you pick up on the fact that we are needs-led because that's really, really important to us. Having one-size-fits-all prescriptive sort of service, if you will, to any body or any group of people is just not our model. We work really holistically and it's really important to have the expertise that we've, we've come to acquire on Sudan because that really informs how we can actually hold the individual, how we are able to really be present with that individual who might be sharing testimony. That's important for their asylum claim, for us to then liaise with their lawyer, or just simply for us to be able to say, we hear you, you know, we see you and we know your experience is true based on lots and lots and lots of hours and hundreds and hundreds of testimonies. You know, certainly we can spot when somebody might have some inconsistencies, but we also really spot when people are pouring out their hearts and they want to share exactly what it is that they've been through and be believed. 
Sometimes it's honestly as simple as like knowing a Sudanese Arabic word or knowing where a town is in relation to something else and we'll suddenly see someone's face light up and they go, you know, you know about this. And we go, yeah, of course we know. Every Sudanese person would know where that town is in relation to that refugee camp, for instance. And it's really disappointing that it's it's kind of that simple, but often we're the first person that someone has met who is British looking or American in Sonia's case, who actually has some knowledge of, of Sudanese culture and basic facts about the country. Some cases, these people have been through a substantive interview and you're thinking, what, did the Home Office not kind of give you any indication that they had that background information themselves? Or it can just feel a bit, a bit disappointing. Yeah, I mean, I've been around when a social worker has come to my family house to visit one of the boys and got their nationality wrong. Like, oh, you're Sudanese, right? To my Eritrean brother. And it reminds me of a moment that I had in Calais years ago when a Sudanese friend of mine had seen a headline about migrants, you know, coming here to steal our jobs or something along that rhetoric right and he'd been very upset that that was the idea or the perception in the UK and he asked me he said but what do people in the UK think about what's happening in in Darfur and I remember being like I don't know how to tell you that the majority of people don't actually know And that's why it's so important that we're having this conversation today and the work that you guys do, but also having you guys on the podcast, because, you know, that's nobody's fault. In schools, we're learning about genocides of of past, but we're not learning about what's happening in Darfur right now. And it seems so important to include that. And that's why it was so great when I saw that you have that incredible resource for teachers that pack on how to teach about the genocide in Darfur and maybe you know we should actually begin for any listeners who don't know what is happening in Sudan at the moment what is going on what has been going on and and why it's so important to support the Sudanese community in the UK big question that is a big question I'm just trying to (laughs) organize my thoughts I think we'll have to break this down as best we can so Sudan, I guess if we're starting from the beginning, country in Africa, that always has to be said, it used to be the biggest country. In 2011, uh, it split actually to create the world's newest nation, I think that's still true, with, yes. with South Sudan in the south. But Sudan had, since 1989, up until 2019, been ruled by a dictator uh, called Omar al-Bashir. He seized power and very quickly changed the country and made it have more of a Islamist bent to it, leading to massive restrictions on, for instance, women's rights, on various forms of freedom of every kind, but most notably for some of the people from marginalised backgrounds or from areas in the periphery. And one of those is Darfur. But there are, of course, other areas in the country that have suffered a similar fate, such as South Kordofan, which is in the south, Blue Nile, the east and the north. So it was really a case of Bashir ruling for a central elite and, you know, a more Arabized elite and viewing with some disdain those black African groups. That kind of is acceptable language uh, or, or the usual language used, but black African tribes, which more often lived in Darfur or the Nuba Mountains. And as Maddie said, there's been a marginalization of certain groups, and they are usually the Black Africans who did not have access to health care in the same way as the Arab population or the elite. People were, were beaten for speaking their own tribal languages. Their names were taken from them. They were given more Arabized names. People don't have access to jobs in the same way. And all of that still exists. We've been told different stories about having to have ID cards. And if your ID card shows that you're from a certain tribe, well, you're out of luck. You're not going to get a job. 
And, and that has a real impact on one's own self-worth, I suppose, as, as not just as an individual, but as a community and a nation, if you're constantly being told that you're not worthy. Eventually, there were groups, armed movements in Darfur that sprang up that were intent on claiming their rights. And when they did so, government responded incredibly violently and with scorched earth tactics. So they didn't just limit themselves to attacking an armed movement. They decided, let's attack the people who support that armed movement. So that includes poisoning wells. That would include burning entire villages, bombing entire villages, and often committing just heinous atrocities they would arm uh, and provide resources to local militia, local Arab militia, who were called the Janjaweed, or the devils on horseback. That was about 2003, 2004 that we saw the first big waves of violence. But I think the most important thing for listeners to know is that that's never really gone away. And in fact, the Janjaweed has changed its name. It's now called the Rapid Support Forces. But the deputy in head, you know, at the top of uh, Sudan's current government, I say that in inverted commas, but, you know, the, the, the group ruling the country in the, in the uh, military coup is the head of the RSF. So we've got the Janjaweed, the genocidaires are at the top of the country. And that's where we are today. And that's despite Sudan having gone through just these amazing people-led revolutions. I mean, the images of the 2018-2019 the revolution was so inspirational. Truly peaceful people-led protest to oust a dictator where they got rid of Bashir and then they said, that's not enough. They kept out on the streets and they said, we want to get rid of the whole military. And where we are today is the military is just clinging on to control, to power. They do not want to leave. And when it looked like the balance was being tipped out of their favour, they acted and enacted a military coup and now are back in charge. And the worry is that that's just going to create more marginalisation, more violence against periphery groups, huge repressions. And we're seeing that now. Darfur is, is suffering some of the worst violence that it has, certainly um, you know, in kind of my, <laughs> my time with waging peace, but also since 2004, since those beginnings, when the world did look at Sudan for a brief period and say, yeah, genocide's occurring there, but it, it's never stopped. It's, it's, it's been like that for decades. The Sudanese people have been known for their, their tremendous um, ability to, to, to bring themselves forward. I always have to kind of put it against my own age bracket, if that makes sense. You know, Bashir came in in 1989. I'm going to reveal that I was born in 1990. <laughs> <was> I. <laughs> yeah. And just to think, I have to sometimes put it in terms of myself. Like, imagine you've grown up in a country that has for all of its life had a dictator, had Bashir. And then to all of a sudden be part of a movement that unseats that dictator and thinks of a whole new future for your country without having ever seen it actually be practically modelled. I just think that's really inspirational. Hope. Hope, yeah. Yeah, there is hope. Mm -hmm. Anyone who kind of has an interest in revolution, an interest in how societies build themselves up from true grassroots, Sudan's the place to look. Both of you speak so eloquently about this. I could just listen to you for hours. It wasn't 2019, right? 2000, I think it was 2019 when everyone had their blue profile pictures and suddenly Sudan was on people's radars for a short amount of time. And unfortunately, that's always the way that the news cycle works, right? Did that amplify what you were doing in any way? And was that a positive thing for you guys? And, and how much does awareness of the general public on Sudan kind of play a part in what you do? Yeah, I mean, I remember at that time and... You know, I'm saying all this with the knowledge that I'm not Sudanese. So I get that privilege of, although there, I have many friends in the country, you know, this is not my family. This is not me having to check to see if a relative has died during the revolution and the violence mm -hmm. that people saw. But even I remember kind of waking up and seeing like Rihanna had a blue profile picture or 
I think it was one of the Kardashians. And then like Gigi Hadid, I might be getting, there's several Hadids, I don't know. One of them <laughs> had a blue profile picture and feeling so seen. And, I, you know, it gave me a small insight into if that was my country there and I had fled that country, how seen it would have made me feel. And it felt completely unprecedented for us. And even if it was just like a gesture, it really meant a lot. And I think people are looking for some of that in this newest kind of revolution or, or stage of the revolution that people are in. They want to be seen. But I think what's always so amazing when we look at Sudanese politics is no one is waiting around for the international community to get its bum and gear. You know, like people are doing it for themselves. They are not going to stop protesting. They have set up their own kind of alternate local governance structures. They're not waiting for Britain and the US to do something. They're doing it. They just want to be witnessed and allowed the space to do it and to rule themselves. And that's as simple as their message is. It's like, we want a chance to govern ourselves. Mm -hmm. And ever since independence from Britain, our colonial, former colonial power, we haven't been given that chance yet. So like, give it to us. Let us, let us do it. And so, yeah, I mean, that's not to take away from, um, you know, if the Kardashians are listening, you know, they want to make their profile blue. That would be great. Please do. Um, but we Sudan got it. listeners of this podcast. Of course. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> hey. <laughs> Media attention and education, they are vital. They're vital to the Sudanese communities that we work with. And they're vital to us, too. And we, we tend to kind of ride the tide. We, because we've been going for now over 17 years, almost 18 years, we have seen attention and we have seen the attention wane. Mm -hmm. And we have held tight and held firm because our commitment has been very clear from the outset. And we've worked really hard at maintaining this commitment. But what has not waned is the the requests for media, the requests for attention, the requests to be seen. And that's the, the only way that we can kind of presence it. And I, I don't know if I can just share a, an anecdotal story about why that's so important. Maddie and I haven't been able to visit Darfur yet or Sudan, but we did go to South Sudan to the north, right on the border where many, many people from South Kordofan, the Nuba Mountains, um, have fled. And they now live in a refugee camp just um, over the border of Sudan in South Sudan. And we talked to many people. We talked to women. We talked to children. We talked to refugee camp leaders. But one meeting that we held, I remember, the women we're so passionately speaking about go and tell the world how we are suffering. Please just tell them. And that to, to us really kind of translated into, I want to be seen. I matter. You know, my country matters. My family matters. Where I live matters. Do you guys remember the first time that somebody shared firsthand their experience, their story with you? Oh, even the question makes me a little emotional. Um, I do. Yeah, and a lot of people think in this job you have to develop a thick skin. And, and in some way, you have to have a healthy kind of distance because you're hearing really horrible things all the time. But this first testimony was with a woman. And um, I remember the one piece, sorry. <clears throat> she was in media and um, clearly not reporting on things that were okay by the standards of the Bashir regime and had a, a visit to her house by the Janjaweed. And um, she was breastfeeding her young baby, um, I think weeks old, and they ripped him from her 
and put a, a hood over her head and the man handled her and took her out to be arrested. But the, the you know, and I won't go into too much else of the story, but the, the image of a mother, a woman breastfeeding her child and the trauma alone from the baby violently being ripped from his mother's breast really impacted me because that's something that's going to remain for the woman and for the child, no matter how young. And that, that's just always stuck. Appreciate you for sharing that. Thanks for sharing that, yeah, Sonia. Very um, appreciated. I, I have a similar story that just, but I remember taking in like my first few weeks of the job, two people's testimony and similar to what Sonia described, my mind couldn't really comprehend the treatment they'd received. And this might sound flippant, but this was treatment they'd received in the UK by UK officials. And I remember being so shocked. I mean, one of these people had had a trauma reaction, which meant that the sound of the keys when their room was being locked brought back memories of torture and detention in, in Sudan. And they lost the use of their legs. They just, they said that they couldn't walk anymore. That's how this manifested for them. They couldn't walk. And they were crawling around their room and they tried to crawl out one day into the hallway to get food or some other item. And they were told by the guards, you can crawl in your room, but don't crawl in the hallway because there's cameras there. So they knew that they weren't treating this person correctly and still said that. And in another case, there was somebody who was feeling ill and had to be hospitalized. And while they were hospitalized, they were handcuffed. And I just, I remember like, you know, this is like week one or two. And I was thinking, this is not pensions providers anymore. <laughs> like I was really shocked and ashamed that I had not known that treatment like that was happening in the UK to people. And this is like, aside from, I now know those people very well and their full stories and know the absolute horrors they had suffered in Sudan, which in kind of, you know, if you're looking at a hierarchy of suffering, I guess you would think of those as being the greater evils, you know, the, the periods of, of torture, of rape in some cases, you know, these were terrible things done to them in Sudan. But there was something about once they reached the UK, being treated in the way they were, it felt so, it felt crushing to know. And I mean, it felt also very uh, motivating in a way, because it's like, well, that I can stop. And, you know, I don't want to slip into pessimism, but it's, you know, seven years on for me, seven plus years on, I, there is a kind of moment where you look around and you look at the borders bill and you think, what are we doing? Like, what? What's been achieved? Like, why is the tide turning again against the rights of this group of people? Let's talk a little bit more about that, because we've talked a bit about the situation in Sudan, how that can manifest. We have, I think, an idea of the journeys that people are taking to get to the UK and also why. You know, I met a lot of Sudanese people that already spoke English um, very well had an idea of the UK that perhaps is, as you describe, not the reality. But when somebody from Sudan arrives to the UK right now, what does the process look like for them? Somebody arrives and then they are sent to a facility or a hotel, which is basically glorified detention because there are certain rules while people are in the hotels. They have to sign in, sign out, uh, various different things. There are two interviews. One is the initial screening, and then there's the substantive, more uh, longer interview. And we're seeing people who are languishing for a year and a half, two years, without even having these interviews. So you've got a bottleneck situation. You've got a lot of people wanting to do what they can to contribute to society or to move along, get education, whatever. And they're not allowed to work. They're restricted in many different ways. And I mean, I would love to be able to say, oh, and at the end of it, though, asylum 
is is almost guaranteed. And certainly Sudan has historically had quite a high acceptance rate because of the situation in the country that the Home Office acknowledged meant that there were groups that were at, at such high risk. So we were, you know, in our past, there were very few cases actually that we had to to kind of go to bat for and fight and bring new evidence for because it was just so abundantly clear that there was a violent situation in the country that was causing people to flee, mm-hmm. especially if they were Darfuri, or as the Home Office uses uh, the language non-Arab Darfuri, which is complicated, but um, that's the words they use. Um, and, and the kind of con- the evidence that they require is that someone's non-Arab Darfuri. But what's happened in the years since is that there's this drive to try and limit the number of successful claims. I mean, that's my assessment. I'm sure that's not how it would be presented by the Home Office, but we're seeing these real attempts to sort of say, look, Sudan is safe, or this is a, the way they do it now is, well, Sudan's not safe um, and Darfur is not safe, but you know what? I bet you could go to Khartoum and be fine. And this is despite the fact of the coup, the violent and bloody aftermath of that coup now, because things take so long to kind of trickle down to home office decision makers. But, you know, even now we're seeing a real rise in the number of refusals. We've contributed so many times to different home office country policy and information official guidance notes to show that there's continued risk. We've had to go to the upper tribunal to country guidance case level to say, no, People are still at risk and it it feels like it's a really hard message to get across that the situation in the country is not yet safe. And I get that the Home Office doesn't want to make like a blanket assessment and say that things aren't safe. They, They really hate doing that for any country. But there is evidence in Sudan that it isn't. And our own Foreign Office sort of acknowledges that the situation is not safe. And yet it feels like we're constantly having to to go up against the Home Office, who do not want to hear that message, want to find individual reasons why someone could be safely returned. And, you know, we've had cases where someone was returned and then was met with persecution and then had to be returned back to the UK to have their case considered here because the Home Office acknowledged, hey, we made a, a big mistake. And obviously that person was lucky enough to kind of be able to maintain links to the UK. We don't know what happens in other cases. Having to go up against this narrative all the time is exhausting over like 18 years. When the country situation changes, we'll be the first people to like celebrate it, to party with the Home Office. Um, (laughs) Not in a kind of number 10 way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But it's not there yet. No No. parties, especially in COVID. No. I actually remember reading the story, um, maybe this time last year, actually, about a friend of yours, Sharif, who lived in Tottenham, right, and went back to Darfur and was killed last January. Do you want yeah. to tell, share a little bit more of his story? Yeah, I mean, we didn't know him personally, oh. but we have come to know him and his story. Such a loved man. So he survived the original genocide in Darfur, 2003-2004, and he made it to the UK. He had a wife and two children at the time. Sadly and tragically, they were killed. He was here in the UK, was granted his asylum after a failed attempt, after failed attempt, then became very much uh, part of the community Um, the British community. And he wanted to continue to help his people. was from the Masalit community in Darfur. And there's a big Masalit community, Sudanese community, here in the UK. So it was always working on different initiatives to increase awareness and, and education. He managed to get remarried, and he went back to... Darfur. His wife at the time was pregnant with their first child. And tragically again, I mean, the story is just fraught with so much tragedy. She died in childbirth. So when Sharif went back 
he was going back to try and figure out how to bring his daughter here to the UK, his baby daughter. And in January 2021, as we've mentioned here already, the violence, the conflict in Darfur was still raging, has been raging ever since. And before he could bring his daughter back to the UK, uh, Sharif was murdered and assassinated in Darfur. If anyone is really interested to, to kind of read more of the details, we do have a resource that speaks to his life. His family has been, um, has given their blessings. They've been very, as again, as we've mentioned, there is this real desire to have, bring meaning to a person's life and to bring awareness even through these really tragic stories. Again, thank you for sharing that. I think it's really important to uh, include stories of some of the individuals that you guys have worked with and I guess this podcast has always been about like the humanity and the, the human stories behind some of the headlines. One of the other stories that I will never forget you sharing with me was actually a really lovely story of a reunion of three women who hadn't seen each other for a long time and they actually re- met at a ceremony for, for genocide survivors, right? Yeah. We were just invited to think of a few different survivors who might appreciate being invited to a royal gathering. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so we put our heads together uh, and eventually came up with an, an all-female lineup. And so we arranged everything separately. We we knew everyone individually and not as a group at all. And it was highly confidential. Like you couldn't actually talk about what it was, who was going until the last minute. Mm -hmm. So, you know, having the conversations like, what should I wear? We're like, we don't know. What do you wear <laughs> to meet a royal? I've never met a royal person. I don't know. Um, so everyone gets ready. Everyone shows up on the day. And we weren't invited, by the way. This was for survivors only. Yeah. And... That is quite right. Yeah. And, well, they showed up and they think they were all seated near or next to each other, which is quite an interesting decision. I would have I would have maybe put people around the room so everyone could have conversations. But thankfully they did because two of the women looked at each other and went, oh, we know each other. But they didn't just know each other. They had gone to school together they had been competitive at school as to who was the best student because they were both really intelligent. <laughs> they were like best friends. Yeah. And they were like, do you remember? And, you know, that was that was it for the rest of the evening. They did all, all day. They did not care That's where true. they were, <laughs> you know, who Apparently, they were meeting. when a royal came by to kind of do the meet and greet at each table, they were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway. <laughs> yeah. So like, what have you been up to? And it's, I mean, they, they reminisce about studying under a particular tree yeah. and to have that experience and to and, and for it to be so not prepared by any of us like we we had no idea that they would know each other like not even a vague inkling and then for them to meet in that way just felt magical really magical and they've stayed in touch since the whole gang of three has I mean <laughs> it's just it, you know that is fate you'd have to be like right we have to be best friends now that, it, it, it just I mean it sent us on a high for months if not years and I think we're still on a high really from it but to put it into context for your listeners I mean here is a region who was ravaged with war and so people lost touch. You lose touch. You don't have um, the ability to connect with people. There weren't mobile phones at the time. There was, you know, there wasn't all of that. And so, you know, those people who were not in your immediate circle, you didn't even know their fate. And so when these women saw each other again, you know, imagine the rush of all of those memories of the time that was before the conflict, before the war, and before the genocide, and, and the sweetness and also the bitterness of that. 
yeah, made so much more impactful because of the struggle that they'd been through in the meantime since they'd last seen each other, right? I think it's such a beautiful story and it stuck with me when you told it to me the first time too and it reminded me of a story that I'll quickly share too because one of the first people that I met in Calais was a young man called Juma. And Juma didn't speak any English, but somehow we had a connection. We like got each other. We had the same sense of humor without language, right? He was just funny. He was very funny. And we had a lot of laughs together and spent quite a lot of time together. He's Sudanese from Darfur. One day I, I came to the camp and I, I went to Juma's shelter and in his shelter with him was another man who looked exactly like him. And this man did speak English and he said, oh, I'm Mohammed, I'm Juma's brother. I was like, huh? I didn't know Juma had a brother. <laughs> and he went on to tell me the story, Mohammed told me, that they had been separated when they were crossing the sea between Libya and Italy. They didn't have a way to stay in contact. They didn't know whether each other had even made the boat crossing safely. Oh. Um, but they knew that they were both heading in the same direction, right? That they were heading towards the UK. But they hadn't seen each other for weeks, if not months. And one afternoon... They'd both ended up in Calais, in, in the jungle, and they'd both been standing in a food distribution queue. And Mohammed told me the story that he'd heard this voice a few people down from him chatting away, blah, 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 blah. And immediately he knew, it's Juma. Oh my God, it's Juma. And he said he could hear that voice from above the noise of the, of the queue because he would hear his brother anyways, loud and funny and laughing. And so he shouted, Juma. And they had this beautiful reunion in the food distribution queue. And the, for the first time in weeks, months, they'd been reunited and they were now back sharing a shelter in the camp together. And they're still good friends of mine now. And actually, they were separated again when crossing from Calais to the UK. Mohammed made it a couple of weeks earlier. Juma was still in the camp and then he eventually made it to the UK too. And now one of them lives in Nottingham and one of them lives in Birmingham, so not too far away from each other. And Mohammed now has a baby. Yeah. I know, it's such a lovely story. And they're such lovely, <sighs> lovely brothers. Our friendship has been has spanned countries, you know, we've been to visit them in Nottingham and Birmingham. And uh, remember. I'm vegetarian, but I don't think I ever actually told them this. Uh, and um, we arrived one evening quite late, I think, to Nottingham um, to visit. And we stayed the night at Juma's house. And we woke up in the morning, I was with my two brothers, to the smell of meat. And it was like <laughs> 8 a.m. <laughs> and Juma was barbecuing more meat than I've ever seen on the barbecue outside <laughs> because we told him that we had to leave early and oh. I think we were leaving earlier than he expected us to and he prepared you know he'd bought all this food and he wanted to make us a meal but we needed to leave at like 10 a.m. that morning or whatever so he was making it for breakfast oh. <laughs> so we had the meatiest breakfast you've ever known wow thankfully my brothers were there and could take one for the team yeah <laughs> I didn't have to tell Juma, like, really sorry, Juma, but I'm not going to eat any of that. I just I made it I think he's going to know now. <laughs> Hopefully he's not going to listen to this, but if you are, Juma, we can laugh about it now. Yeah. <laughs> oh, brilliant. It's weird you say, because yeah. I'm, I'm also vegetarian, and then it was only last week, and I'm really sorry if this person listened to this, that I sat down and we were going to be served a light lunch, which in Sudanese terms means you're gonna <laughs> yeah. eat do not eat breakfast show up starving um and it was it was salmon and there's just no way to say you know <laughs> i'm not it eating the food delicious. it was also delicious honestly but, um, that's when i make it i feel like that's when you have to be an element of flexible and it's tricky for me when it's meat because it's so long since i've eaten meat but there have definitely been times where I'm like, I just, I can't say no to you right now. Yeah. This is just so lovely. It made me think as well, like, I'm sure Juma's laugh is really distinctive. And you know when you have something about yourself that you're like, oh, am I very obnoxious when I laugh in company <laughs> or something? But imagine, like, that's the thing that if you were separated from people for years, you'd be like, oh, 
your that, ears perk up. Your ears perk up. Like, oh, that is the ridiculous laugh of, of Sonia Roar. <laughs> yes, that's what brought you back together. I hope that for that reason, Gemma has never suppressed no. the volume of his laughter. Right. Because, Natural <laughs> yeah, laughter, yeah. Because of what it actually achieved in that moment. There's something that I've, I've not really ever experienced before with a community like the Sudanese community who have just this generosity in abundance. And it's a real privilege to be so closely working with the community in this, in my role. I couldn't agree more. I had never met anybody from Sudan before I went to Calais in 2015. And the hospitality that I was met with despite the fact that the conditions were absolutely terrible, right? Yet still, somehow, the Sudanese community, every single time that I was there, managed to make me feel welcome, looked after, cup of tea in hand, sitting on a seat immediately, like they would get up and be like, sit down, sit down, by the fire, warm. It was just incredible. And and that's continued, actually, over my years of meeting people from Sudan. It seems to be a common thread. For those people, and we've been hearing this rhetoric a lot, right, that are saying people should come to the UK legally, is there a legal way for people to seek asylum in the UK from Sudan? And what does that look like, if so? Yeah, they're doing it. It's not illegal to make the journeys they're making. So none of it is illegal in my view. There is no current way where you can like go visit the British Embassy and just try your luck. Like the practical difficulties of that are momentous. Ways that you you just don't have an awareness of if you've grown up in a country that isn't beset by that level of repression and violence. Thank you for actually highlighting that because you're absolutely right. Seeking asylum in any country is legal under international law, right? And I think I just want to reiterate what you said there, that there isn't a safe way for people to go to an embassy, to fill in a form and to avoid or bypass crossing borders, seas, deserts to get to the UK, living in camps, etc., that migration has been a part of the human condition for centuries. Mm. Whether people who hear this podcast um, like it or not, I mean, I am a migrant. Mm. And to some, you are too, kind of. I mean, really, yeah. we, we grew up in different places and find ourselves here mm. now. I, I wonder if that seems acceptable and what makes that acceptable and... Sudanese, for example, fleeing persecution, war, you know, torture, all sorts, is not. And I just would, I'd, I'd love it if people kind of dropped into that a little bit and thought about it. And what, what makes some migration okay and others, no. Is there anything else that you think really needs to be covered at the moment? I kind of want to just give a shout out to the women of Sudan. They have been incredible throughout the protests and the revolution, being on the front lines. I'm not dismissing anybody's action whatsoever, but I am just elevating for a moment the cost it has, has taken for women to be out there to really change attitudes, to put their own lives and their vulnerabilities at risk. It's really quite extraordinary. And I just given some props to Sudanese women. And of course, the youth who are just so committed to seeing change in Sudan and what they are doing is sort of a beacon of hope constantly going back at it, really wanting peace for their country. They want peace, freedom, and justice. I don't feel like that's a lot to ask. Talking of the incredible women of Sudan, let's hear from one of them. Maddie and Sonia put me in contact with an old friend of theirs, Marwa. 
I went to her home in London, which she shares with her husband and four children, to record this powerful conversation. It's an absolute honour for me to hear these experiences firsthand and to be able to share them with you here. I'm Marwa Al-Hajj. I'm from Sudan. I work as a journalist in Sudan and national TV Sudan as a presenter and producer. Since I was a little girl, I picture myself as a journalist and a producer and presenter, uh, which wasn't easy to be achieved in Sudan. Yes, I can imagine, because there's not really the freedom to write about and speak about what you want to in Sudan. Is that right? It is right. And uh, besides that, you cannot go through the career you choose unless you have been one of the supporters of uh, the regime in Sudan. So I wasn't that supporter to the regime. I stood against their uh, policies. Chances only given at that time to people who support the regime. You were never given opportunities? At all, at all. And uh, even if you struggled and fight for your rights, at the end you're going to fail because you don't have the power, the ability to fight the whole regime. Is it also dangerous for you to be opposing the regime and writing about it? Of course it is dangerous. For example, I don't get the chance to say my opinions. It was impossible to do that. But even writing a piece of opinion on your social media, you get punished. In 2012, I received a call. He's one of the security, security forces, Mm -hmm. and we want you to come tomorrow at seven o'clock to our uh, office. It is known office in Khartoum that detain people and detain journalists. So he just asked me to come tomorrow at seven o'clock. I said, I will come. Then he said to me, if you don't come, we know your house. We know you have three children and we're gonna come and pick you in front of your children's eyes. So it's better to come by yourself. I had no chance except to go at seven o'clock to that office, which is security office. I got investigated Mm -hmm. about my writings, about my opinions on the regime. Why do you say that? Why do you encourage people through your writing to demonstrate against the regime? And this kind of questions. When I got back, the TV station I used to work on, they told me, you are a trouble for us. So they stopped me from working. By the way, this was the third time I got stopped from work because my opinion. Even I don't say my opinion loudly. They just feel, for example, from my dressing, they know I'm not supporting the Islamic regime because I I don't normally put the scarf and so on. Wow. That must have also been so scary to get that phone call and know that that next morning you had to go to this. Actually, after that, become normal and repeatedly. Sometimes they get me all the day, ask me to report every day at seven o'clock to that place. I just stay there and they release me at 7 p.m. for like 10 days. When they asked me, I told them I never done anything to undermine the regime, even my opinion. When I wrote this, I didn't encourage anyone to do anything. I think I was lucky because I have colleagues and friends who got detained and never got the chance to return back to their home. Other people, I know they got torched, beaten and everything you can imagine. So I was lucky. 
they ask me don't write anything about political mm-hmm. or don't show your opinion on your writing they threaten me like like this uh, if you do that you're gonna see something that you you will not like it mm-hmm. actually to be honest i afraid to write again i started to think uh, to go out of uh, sudan anywhere my main problem at that time was my children i know how this regime able to do to my children without any kind of merciful i became horrified that they they kidnapped my children while they they were coming from schools i had this kind of uh, of thoughts so it was struggle either to live in this situation or to search another where to live in so that was why you made the decision to actually yeah. leave Khartoum yeah exactly it was difficult decision as well because uh, i had to leave my children uh, in sudan and i didn't know when we could meet together again so it was uh, a very difficult time to say goodbye to them whereas you don't know when you're gonna meet them again we met after uh, one one year and four months it's like a, like a hell at that time really i don't want to say that uh, i was alive because the life stopped for me since i left my children and came to UK till the moment I I saw them again after one year and four months. I thank God this happened because also I see other people who migrant who fled from their countries for uh, trouble or war or political situation and some of them had uh, like two years three years to meet their children again so thankfully i met my children and husband after one year and four months and they are now settled at the schools they are happy they have their own ambitions for their life so everything is fine now I left very small one and I was uh, pregnant when I left. Okay. Yeah. So you I was all... pregnant with the uh, fourth one. Okay, I see. Yeah. Wow, so you took the fourth one with you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I took the fourth one with me. I delivered him uh, maybe after three months or four months. In the when, UK? In the UK, yes. Okay. It was difficult to come here and to start from scratch. Mm. I'm no longer young. I felt that I have to start my life from the beginning. You leave your career, you leave your friends, your community. You leave everything that related to yourself. I don't want to say that I'm struggling to integrate in the community here. But still, I have something missing. I have empty part in my heart that I'm trying to fill since I came here, which is never refilled. Mm-hmm. You can say it's like homesick. Yeah, mm-hmm. homesick, which I tried to cure myself from it and completely failed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I guess it's very different here from life in Sudan. It's not easy in several ways. Yeah, you can feel you are safe. This is the the thing that most of uh, migrant people are searching for, Mm -hmm. to be safe and secure. But there is another kind of uh, struggling we are facing here as uh, migrant people. 
So tell me about that moment when after one year and four months you were reunited with your three older children and your husband. Wow, this is <laughs> the most favorable moments on my life. Mm-hmm. As I told you, I've been waiting for this moment for one year and four months. Just crying. Imagine that. Someone had been crying for like 16 months or 17 Mm. months. The only thing I do uh, was to cry. I was very happy to meet them again. I thought that we will never be reunited. And when I saw my children coming out of the airport, I started to yell and cry. I get hysteria. Mm-hmm. Hysterical. Yeah. Hysterical. Mm-hmm. Yes. And nearly I, I was about to faint. Mm. Yeah, because it was very hard moment yeah, to see them again. But definitely it was a happy, happy, very happy moment. Mm. I bet mm. they'd grown and changed a lot. Yeah, yeah. And they hadn't met their little baby brother. Uh, that was the first time to meet him. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should talk a little bit about the situation in Sudan and for civilian people, what it looks like at the moment. I'm really very sorry for uh, people in Sudan. I believe they deserve better than what they have now. They have been struggling for a civil government or civilian government. They uh, have been searching for democracy, uh, for justice for long, 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 long time. But still this moment, they didn't get what they want. We experienced 30 years of military government And it was really a very brutal regime and uh, commit atrocities on Sudan. For 30 years, Sudan was dedicated to people just support the government. 30 years, the government repressed people in Sudan. You can't express your opinion. You can't ask for uh, your rights. Something suddenly happened in 2018. The whole Sudanese agreed that this regime should be out. After a long time, they had the courage to go to streets and demonstrate against the regime. And thankfully, at the beginning, we as a Sudanese people success to out this regime. Mm-hmm. And there has been a transitional government. Unfortunately, it was shared between civilian mm-hmm. and military, which is a part of the old regime. They paved the way for the old regime to get back and to rule again. So we have to start again from scratch to fight against the military government because it's the same government that replaced people, detained them for expressing their points of views or asking for their rights. So still people uh, in Sudan, they are fighting for democracy and justice. Till this moment, people and youth, uh, they will be shot and die just because they go outside. I'm so sorry for this situation in Sudan. After the revolution, I thought that things uh, has changed and they could go back again to Sudan. To feel that empty part I told you before. But before I managed to go back to Sudan, the coup uh, happened. 
So still I can't go back to Sudan on this situation. But I believe soon or later, people in Sudan would eliminate this uh, government. So you have hope for the future? Yes, I do have hope. Nothing <laughs> except hope. To find out more about Sudan and the work of Waging Peace, check out their website, wagingpeace.info. Thank you for listening today. I'm always open to thoughts and feedback. To get in touch, send me a direct message on Instagram at the Worldwide Tribe. Other actions you can take to support this podcast and join the Worldwide Tribe are to visit our shop and buy a t-shirt or a hoodie or donate. All details are in the show notes and in my Instagram bio. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it, rate it and leave a review. It helps more people find this podcast and it helps me to keep bringing you these stories. Finally, please go and give our amazing sponsor a visit at lovewelcomes.org or lovewelcomes on Instagram. Remember to use the code WWT at checkout for 10% off. The more people who come on this journey with us, the more connected we all become and the more we unite as one worldwide tribe. Big shout out to Alexander Wells at alexanderwells.co.uk for our audio production and original score and to Ez Stone for mixing this episode.